start of the week what the passage was I said well this is going to be a tough one to theme <laughs> when you read what we're going to read you're going to take a little bit of a hard swallow it's a tough passage you know many people um, talk about oh the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath and fury and they haven't read Revelation have they <laughs> and and uh, that the fullness, because they want to focus, oh, that was good, just got rid of my sermon, I'll get it back. <laughs> um, they want to focus only on the love of Christ, they, they, they kind of like the gentleness of the lamb at the best, but as Adrian's brought through to us, we need to deal not only with the, the fact that he is both lamb and lion. In fact, I was looking at a, uh, uh, some notes during the week and uh, there's a ministry called Lamb and Lion Ministries. I think it does us well to remember the two sides of the same coin um, as we come to it. That was a bit of a time waster knocking this sermon off. But uh, There we go. So we've been looking in chapter 14 at the return of the Lord Jesus. And our title this morning is Plague, Panic, Plunder. And you'll find why as we, as we read through. It's from the series uh, Zechariah. And remember that the theme of the book of Zechariah is the Lord is calling Israel to return to him. That same call goes to us, of course, as well. If we've wandered from the things of God, if we've uh, sought the ways of the world rather than his way. Uh, but uh, this is our passage. I'm not going to get you to try and read it from there. We'll read it in, in detail as we go, just showing you the work that we've, we've sort of been doing through it. And he says, Zechariah reveals, now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. And their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongues will rot in their mouths. Told you it wasn't an easy passage. Okay, Think about it, get the picture of it, and it's quite gory. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also, like this plague, will, uh, 
will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps. As John MacArthur notes, the prophet one final time cycles back over the judgment that precedes the kingdom. Now we've got to remember something here. God has said all along, right back in Genesis chapter 12, he said to Abraham this, he says, and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There are two words for curse but they use two different in English. We don't see it in English but in the Hebrew there are two words um, for curse. The first is kalal, and it speaks of a light offence. The second is aor, and it speaks of a heavy offence. So even though they should take a light curse against Israel, God will heavily curse them later on. That's a promise to the nations, and it's a promise that's never been rescinded. Watch out the nations. Do you know Israel has had more censure motions against it since its formation in the United Nations than any other country? All of the totalitarian regimes, of course, some of them, two of them, are, are on the, uh, the, the controlling council of the United Nations so they can veto anything um, against themselves. But not even Iran, not even uh, North Korea have received anything like the censure motions that have been focused on Israel. Interesting, isn't it? The wrath of God will be poured out on the nations that come against them. By the way, which nations are involved here? We know from 14 chapter 2, all the nations come against in this final battle. So watch out for the rising of the lion. And so here we are at the end point of the tribulation and you see the process of the panorama of prophecy there. We're at the return, we're at the, the judgment in the final battle just before he, he establishes the kingdom. Um, and in four, chapter 14 too we read... <clears throat> For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Instead of judging his own city, the Lord will now curse the nations that have come against it. He will defeat the nations who fight against Jerusalem. J.B. Phillips notes that Zechariah seems to flit back and forth from the gruesome to the glorious. Here, as though drawn by a magnet to the gruesome, he gazed on the horrors of the siege that will precede the Lord's enthronement. God will annihilate Israel's enemies by three means. Plague, panic, and plunder. So we first look at the plague. In sharp contrast to the safety provided, as we looked at in last week's message, for the surviving Jewish remnant, annihilation is promised for Israel's enemies who are under God's curse. 
The judgment is described as a plague upon all the people who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Arnold Fruchtenbaum notes that the, after the death of the Antichrist, the slaughter of his army will continue. Several passages picture the Messiah marching through the land in indignation and treading the nations with his feet, causing blood to be sprinkled on his garments. Here, Zechariah 14, 12 to 15 describes the way these massive hordes of Antichrist's armies will be destroyed. In this manner, the fight continues all the way back to Jerusalem, coming to an end in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The nations that have gathered against the Jews will now find themselves trodden down by the, by the king of the Jews. It is of this treading in the Valley of Jehoshaphat that Revelation 14, 19-20 speaks. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the, the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. What a picture. In context, this passage is dealing with the campaign of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation. And we find it introduced in these phrases. Now, this will be the plague which the Lord will strike all the people who have gone to war against Jerusalem. God will strike the invading armies that have come against Jerusalem with a plague. And notice this, it's divine. With which the Lord will strike. David Levy notes that the words plague in Hebrew, magifah, and strike, magaf, come from the same Hebrew root and mean to strike or smite with a supernatural pestilence. That is to slaughter with divine judgment. This word was used to describe the judgments of gods upon the Egyptians in Exodus 7:17. 7, Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with my staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. These things follow verse 3. When it says in Zechariah 14.3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. We see it also when he fought uh, in 2 Kings 19.35. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. It also tells us that it will be comprehensive. All the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Now, we do know that there is a remnant in the nations. We'll see them in the next verses in this chapter coming to worship in Israel during the time of the millennium. But it's reminiscent of the fate of the Gentiles in Zechariah 12.4. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Isaiah described this day in Isaiah 63 verse 6, In my anger, I trod down my, the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. 
It's the act of God in his individual justice to each one of all those multitudes gathered against him. And by the way, we sort of, uh, the tendency is to think, oh, that's not fair. What, what, what has everyone done that's so wrong? Well, what we've got to remember is that during the Great Tribulation, there will be great witness. There will be a greater missionary effort than we have seen yet with the two witnesses, the 144,000 going and proclaiming. And they will be without excuse. And they will have chosen their side by taking the mark of the beast. Because the mark of the beast means to worship the beast. We've chosen our alliance. To refuse the mark of the beast is ultimately to face martyrdom. As we read elsewhere, particularly in the book of Revelation, we'll see that uh, the blood of the saints who have sacrificed their lives because they would not worship the beast, they would only worship Christ. You see, they're not without. They will know. And in fact, when the two witnesses are, are, are killed, when the, yeah, the, two, the two witnesses from God are killed, it says, and 200 years ago, commentators didn't know what to make of this. And it says the whole of the world will be watching. Now, I remember thinking about this when uh, international news started broadcasting live television news from around the world. But we've come so far since that in the late 70s to the fact that we watch stuff on these now live. And who knows how far the technology will be by the time the Lord does return. the world will be watching they know and in fact they rejoice at the death of the two martyrs and then they go uh oh three days later when they rise to life and they see their back these are this is not this is not a light or a trivial this is the patience of god reaching its end the righteousness and the holy wrath of God and God has good reason to be angry and so we see it described in uh, whoops described in in the second part of the verse their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth as David Levy notes, everyone who attacks Jerusalem will be eradicated because of God's curse. The plague will consume the enemy soldiers while they stand on their feet, leaving only skeletons. It will strike so quickly that those men's eyes and tongues will de de decay instantaneously, an indication of how rapidly this plague will kill the army in the moment of its victory. Now there's a, uh, a note from uh, the IBP Bible background commentary and it says amongst the most common treatments of prominent enemies in the ancient Near East were flaying the skin, putting out the eyes and cutting out the tongue. It was a gory time. But you see, they get the picture that God will bring this final judgment and it will be against the flesh. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. And as Bruce Hurt notes, if the flesh rots, 
All that is left is the skeleton, and without flesh or muscle to hold it up, it literally falls to the ground. Eyes, <clears throat> their eyes will rot in their sockets. One by one, their eyes, of which they had said in Micah 4.11, and let our eyes gloat over Zion, that is, with joy at its desolation, their eyes will rot in their sockets, making them unable to see. And tongue, their tongue will rot in their mouths, making them unable to speak. To Sennacherib, the Assyrian uh, king, uh, God had said in Isaiah 37, 23, Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom, sorry, against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel? You see, Israel doesn't stand as a nation except for its relationship with its founder, the Holy One of Israel. Bruce Hurt notes, the description of the effect of the plague is terrible in the extreme and nothing quite like it has been experienced in warfare before unless one compares with what happened when atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan in 1945. And I, I think this is significant Many look at this and say, oh, well, it's, it's a nuclear war, he unleashes a nuclear, and it's possible that he may. But remember that this is a divine strike. This is God's doing. And he says this, however, however, it's not nuclear warfare which will be the means of such terrible suffering, for the victory will be achieved by the power of God alone. The consuming of the enemy here is not the result of any humanly devised scientific invention. It is clear from the passage that the plague comes from God. The foes of Israel will be destroyed by a living death, the rotting of the body while still alive. Uh, how it's like an instantaneous flesh-eating disease disorder. How horrible this will be. There will be the corruption of death together with an awful sense of their sin in seeking to overthrow God's people and city. Now I want you to consider this because this has interesting application for us as well. Yes, we're looking future. We're looking to the events that surround the coming of the Lord. Uh, but our relationship with the Lord ought to take note of these things as well. I don't know whether you notice there's three things, the flesh, eyes and tongue. Well, have a look at this verse. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And you might think, well, how do we get the third one? The boastful pride of life, what is that? It's expressed by the tongue. It's what, what's within, is the tongue reveals. And if you look at this chart, uh, and I'll have to turn to it here for a second. Okay, flesh, eyes, tongue. Uh, the nature of the temptations associated with it are sensual, material and prideful. Uh, you see it in 1 John 2.16. Look at Jesus in Matthew 4.3-9 when he hasn't eaten, he goes out into the wilderness. Uh, command that these stones be made bread and the temptation is satisfy your hunger, material, the, you know, the, the, the basic material need. Uh, all of these things I'll give you. He looks over the whole of the valley and, and, and says, if you fall down and worship me, it's power and influence. It's temptation to, to grab what you see. And then uh, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, prove yourself. Prideful. Jesus doesn't give in to any of those. Uh, 
if you'd have to go to Ezekiel 16:49, where it speaks of the uh, sin of Sodom, and it, it, it accuses them because they had abundant food, they had careless ease. Does that sound familiar? Western nations today? And they were arrogant. They did not help the poor and needy. And then notice with Genesis, with Adam and Eve initially, but Adam is complicit in it and responsible for it. She saw that the tree was good for food. Okay, fleshly. That it was delight to the eyes, (laughs) the material, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. It appealed to the pride. Raised that issue of pridefulness. So uh, you see why God judges the earth and the nations that have come against him. In Revelation 16 9, it says uh, men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Is the lion roaring then? Yeah. Okay. As Albert Barnes, one of the older commentators, notes uh, from the 1800s, a, a appalling, horrible picture. Standing on their feet, yet their flesh mouldering away as in a graveyard. Their sightless balls decaying in, uh, in, decaying in their holes the tongue putrefying in their mouth, a disgust to themselves and to others. And he makes an interesting comparison. Yet what compared to the horrible inward decay of sin whereby men, and these are men of the church, the church inside us, in Revelation 3, 1, the Holy Spirit has to say, I know your deeds and I, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. What a comparison. Now, in this great tribulation, Matthew 24, 21 to 22, Jesus tells us about the tribulation and its events, that unless the days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. If you go over to Revelation 16 and 19, you find a quarter of the earth is killed by the angels in one place, and then a third... There's great devastation going on as God pours out the wrath uh, of his righteous judgment upon the world. And it's concluded here in this final battle. The second thing that we get in verse 13 is that it's panic. It, It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will see one another's hands and and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. As someone said, who would not panic at the sights described in verse 12? (laughs) If you're watching that actually happening. And J.B. Phillips says, a kind of insanity caused perhaps by the portents of the Lord's return will seize the conglomerate army, the army of the United Nations, if you like. The soldiers will fight against themselves, expediting the escape of the Jewish survivors. David Levy notes, God will confound the armies that war against Jerusalem. The armies will panic and turn their weapons on each other in their madness and they will kill their own soldiers. As God confounded Israel's enemies to destroy themselves in the past, so he will do again. If you're aware of the conflict in Ukraine at the moment, 
You should be aware that there's a conflict going within the forces within the Russian army. And in fact, uh, uh, the forces of Prigozhin uh, attacked part of the main Russian army just recently, a, couple, a week or so back, uh, and killed some of the guys, some of the, their own side. It's just a little picture of the sort of thing that God will do and has done throughout history. Um, and we don't know how it's going to play out in this particular war. It's not, it's not a, one of the biblical battles, but uh, um, there are many pictures. He's done it in the past and he will do it again. In, he did it with Gideon and the Midianites in Judges 7.22. When they blew the trumpets, the Lord sent the sword of one against another even throughout the whole army, and the army fled as far as Beth Shittar towards Zerarah, as far as the edge of Abel Mehalah by Tabath. We see it also with Saul and Jonathan against the Philippines at Michmash in 1 Samuel 14:20. Then Saul and the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle, and behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Jehoshaphat, when he cried out to God that the Assyrian army was coming against him, Lord, we don't know what to do, but you do. And it says uh, in 2 Chronicles 20 to 23, for the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. God sows confusion in the camp and fear and panic. In the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which we believe precedes this final battle, the campaign of Armageddon, uh, earlier in the Great Tribulation period, somewhere in that order, uh, and the specific nations, not all nations, but those specific nations that are shown on the map, come in Ezekiel 38, 21, we read, I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God, every man's sword will be against his brother. And in Haggai 2.22 we read, I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms of the nations and I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. So you get the pattern. This is something God uses repeatedly throughout his word. The third thing is, uh, in verses 14 and 15, but initially verse 14, uh, is that Judah will also fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. God will enable his people to fight. The Israelites will also fight their enemies there and gather much spoil from the people they will defeat. In Haggai 2, 7 to 8, we read, I will shake all the nations... And they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Now this is a reversal of verses 1 and 2 in chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the house plundered, the women houses plundered. The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. 
And we notice just a little detail in that. Again, we've been seeing it throughout chapters 12 to 14. Judah and Israel will be one again as one people. Okay, it says Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. Some translations make this that they will be fighting against uh, Jerusalem, but uh, the context suggests otherwise. It favours the idea that Judah is fighting alongside Jerusalem against a common enemy. J.B. Phillips notes that with, while the, with the Gentile army paralysed by pestilence and civil war, the defenders of Jerusalem will see, sudden, suddenly see victory within their grasp. And if you remember earlier in chapter 13, it said that the weakest in Israel will be like King David, who was never defeated in battle. And, and so uh, in this time, they, they will fall on the enemies and the Jews outside the city will rally to the attack. But remember, it's, it's divine victory, not just the, the power of the people of Israel. David Levy says, the Jewish remnant that initially escaped the invasion of Jerusalem through a valley divinely opened by Jehovah in verses 4 and 5 will return to Jerusalem and kill the invaders who survived God's wrath during the campaign of Armageddon. And it tells us there will be great spoils. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. Once the invaders are dead, following Jehovah's God's defeat of the Gentile forces, Israel will gather the wealth of the surrounding nations. The wealth, the plunder taken, it'll include, of course, the wealth or the plunder taken from Jerusalem. And uh, Dr. Andy Woods, I was watching a, a message on, he, he poured out that uh, uh, the treasures of Solomon, the gold of Solomon, has never been located or found, and he, they suspect it, it may well come back in this period uh, as part of the great wealth. One of the things that Israel is increasing in its position in the wealthy nations. It's about 10th now in the list of nations. But they've been finding great oil and gas reserves underneath Israel and in the sea around Israel. Um, they're now looking to ship gas to Europe in place of Russia in the, in, the, in the next year or two. Israel will be a place of great wealth before the tribulation. And that's why... Uh, the, the Ezekiel war takes place because they want to plunder the, the riches of Israel. Uh, and similarly here in the final battle of Armageddon. But that's not the only situation. It says that uh, the, the wealth of all the surrounding nations, uh, as we see, Israel is just a tiny little speck. Notice on that map how big Israel is. <laughs> I told you last week about a thorn in the flesh, didn't I, and how it produces a precious pearl. Such a tiny nation dominates the world headlines. And the nations are increasingly growing to hate it. Uh, and all sorts of stories are always spread in anti-Semitism about the nature of the Jews and their corruption and all of these things that get multiplied. And the whole of the world is, is turning against that little speck. But that little speck is there because God has put it there. And it represents his holiness, even though the people don't yet. But he will save a remnant that will reflect his glory. And so he brings the nations. 
Now, Oriental, Charles Feinberg notes that Oriental armies carried large amounts of gold and silver with them on their march. You see it in 2 Chronicles uh, 20, 25, when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments and valuable things which they took for themselves more than they could carry and they were three days taking the spoil because there was so much. Now you might wonder about garments, why do they sing? Yeah, gold and silver we understand but what's the significance of garments? Well in, in the, in the uh, Middle East of those times it, it was an important item of wealth. Okay. Then we come to this little verse, verse 15, and a lot of people puzzle about that and say, well, really, it should have been put with verse 12. But I realise that what it's saying, it's a bookmark. Verse 12 is the beginning, verse 15 is the ending. Okay? And the wealth of all this... Uh, so also this plague will be that, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. And it bookmarks it to show how comprehensive God's victory or judgment on the attacking nations will be. The same curse will affect the military animals within the camp, the horses, mules, camels and donkeys. As John MacArthur notes, then he will send a widespread plague that even extends to their animals, preventing their use for military endeavours or escape. This depicts the thwarting of their efforts as God ultimately destroys them by the Messiah, as you'll find in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. And an article from Friends of Israel notes this, so often lowly animals are affected by the strife and struggle of man. When man fell, the animals were placed in bondage. In the case of Joshua, when he conquered the land from the Canaanites, even the animals of the enemy were to be destroyed. When Achan sinned and he and his family were destroyed, all their possessions, including the animals, were stoned and burned. So the animals of the invading armies will not escape the plague. God's judgment is thorough. The point, of course, is that everything connected with those who rebel against God and seek to destroy his people will suffer the same judgment. It's tainted. Woe to those who rebel against God. It brings us to the conclusion to think about it. Okay, that's future. How does this apply to us today? And, and what I'm going to share with you now is in your footnotes under the Food for Thought. I've borrowed it from Stephen Cole. Um, and Stephen, I, I, I find often in his sermons, uh, does application much better than I, than I have tended to be able to do. And he, and he says the application is... Do not despair. Okay, put yourself for a minute in the people uh, in Zechariah's day. They've come back to an insignificant beginning. They're surrounded by hostile nations. They've just come out of captivity. They, they've, been, they've come back with very little. And they're being asked to rebuild the walls of the city. We must always go back to the context of the book. And... This message is giving them a forward glimpse to encourage them that you can press forward, okay, despite all that may happen and that may come against you as a nation. And he says you may be overwhelmed by horrible trials or powerful enemies. It may look as if the evil side has already won. 
Perhaps you are filled with doubts and despair, but our dire extremities become God's choice opportunities to display his mighty power on our behalf. Remember the theme of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, whom the Lord remembers, Zechariah his name. He blesses Berechiah, his father, at the appointed time, Iddo, his grandfather. Remember that when we started the book? God has not forgotten you in your trial. He will deliver you in his appointed time. You may be thinking, I, I know that God is able to deliver me from any and every trial, but what if he doesn't do it? What if the enemy, sickness, persecution, some catastrophe wins? Well, at such times, our answer should be the same as that, uh, as the answer that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego gave to Nebuchadnezzar when he threatened to throw them into the furnace for refusing to bow down before his idol. They said, in Daniel 3, 17 to 18, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They did not know if God would deliver them from death, but they knew that he is still the only true God. They remained obedient to him even in the face of impending death. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, 36 to 39, and particularly verse 38, even if we are put to death as sheep for the slaughter, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us so. He writes to the church in Smyrna that was about to experience severe persecution in Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Thus the Lord's triumph over his enemies at the last day will be sudden, so we should not be deceived when it seems that evil forces are winning. His triumph will be powerful, so we should not despair when we are overwhelmed by enemies that are stronger than we are. Remember the prayer of Jehoshaphat in, in, uh, in 2 Chronicles 20. Uh, Lord, we don't know what to do but you do. And what was God's answer? Go out to the valley and watch. And he confounded the enemy and defeated them without Israel having to raise an arm. Such be our trust in our God. That's what our faith in Christ is intended to produce within us, an ultimate trust, no matter what comes against, that we should refuse to go the way of the world but to trust in him alone, in Christ alone, we sang before. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the lion does eventually roar, that when this world is thinking it has won, we think even in the book of Revelation and we see that they see 
they, they, they see the, the two witnesses killed and they, they celebrate. <laughs> they send each other's cards and greetings and, you know, um, Facebook messages and SMS, whatever it is in that day. But then to their horror, they see the proof of your power as you raise them back to life and the witness stands that you are the God, a King of of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who rules and reigns and will establish his peace. Father, we're reminded that our world is troubled at the moment thinking about uh, what they define as climate change. The climate may well be changing, possibly even as part of your judgments not just because of man's actions alone. And they strive to make patterns, and this is going to be part, I suspect, of the coming rule of one world, one world, push for one world government. The World Economic Forum certainly is pronouncing plans like this. But when you come and reign and restore order into righteousness... You will restore the earth during the millennium to its beautiful state in which you created it. And you will show your right and your power and and the beauty of your reign and the holiness of it. So Father, we, we just pray for each one to be strengthened in trust and confidence that their faith is placed in the only one who can bring this all to fruition. Not man not the cleverness of man's schemes, not the terror of man's reign over us and the fear of what he might do, but our trust is in the one who can take us through all of that and will indeed redeem us and and will give us a new body, a, a glorified body, one that will never perish again, one that will...